Ephesians chapter 6 from verse 1, but we're going to zoom in on verse 4 as we start on the section with parents and the parents' duty in the home and in raising up godly offspring, Lord willing, as well. Let's read the text together and we'll dive in. Ephesians 6 from verse 1. This is the reading of God's word. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as needy people and we ask you for your grace and your mercy, Lord. Help us to, as we look at this passage, Lord, that you would help us to see our duty as parents, see our role as um, fathers and mothers in, in, in the family. Oh Lord, convict us of our sin that we might cling to Christ and run and flee to him as the only way that our sins can be forgiven and washed away. Oh, Father, we pray for your mercy in, uh, in our families that we might raise our children faithfully. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen. So our text this afternoon deals with the parents and their duty before God in parenting. But before we look at the text and what it teaches us, right at the start, there's something that you should have noticed that was a bit strange about the text. Notice in verse 1, who are the children to obey? In verse 1, Re read it again with me. Children, obey whom? Your parents, okay? And that's clarified by verse 2, honor your father and mother, okay? No issues there. We are all on the same page. We agree. But when Paul addresses the parents in verse 4, to whom does he talk to? Notice the first word of verse 4. It says, fathers, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Why not parents? He could have used the same word in verse 1. Why not even father and mother? Does that mean that only fathers are not allowed to not provoke their children to anger, but mothers are allowed to provoke their children to anger? Of course not, right? That's an argument from silence fallacy, if you're in a logic class, right? Just because Paul doesn't say something doesn't mean he believes that thing that he doesn't say, right? So what is going on in this text? Here's the simple point. It's not politically correct. It's not socially or culturally correct, but it is biblically correct. The father is ultimately responsible for the parenting process. The fathers are responsible for the child-rearing process. The fathers bear unique responsibility before the Lord and has the primary influence in their children's lives. Whether we like it or not, that's just the way it is. That's how God made it. Who is the one that should ensure that their children know the Bible? Fathers. Not Sunday school, ultimately. Sunday school supplement and help, but the fathers are responsible. My children need to know the Bible. Who should ensure that children are properly disciplined, properly brought up? properly worshiping Christ, the fathers, right? So that's what this text, this is another text pointing to the direction of male headship, that men, God calls men especially to take the lead in their marriage and to take the lead in their family. 
when men abdicate this, when men are passive, when men are lazy, when men say, that's my wife's job, that's not my job, guess what happens to the family? It withers and dies a slow death. It frustrates both the wife and the children. Now, again, just to clarify that, I'm never, with all of this, saying that the mother's role is not important or even essential. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, think about it quite literally, right? Without the mother, there wouldn't even be children, right? Without the help of the father and the mother, right? We need both. Both are essential. Children need both mom and dad, okay? So this is not a, I'm not trying to say that, that uh, uh, suddenly a mother is indispensable or she's dispensable and she can be replaced. No, not at all. My point is simply this. Children need both parents, especially their father. That's the point. Children need both parents, especially their father. Now, there was an interesting study. Let me try and persuade you. Maybe you're sitting here and you just don't, or not so persuaded that the father is the primary influence in their children's lives. There was an interesting study about the relationship of parents going to church and the effect that that had on their children when they left the home. So listen to these statistics, okay? When both mom and dad went to church, 33% of their adult children when they left the home went to church as well. When only the mother went to church and the father didn't go to church, so only the mother goes to church, the father is not practicing, not a believer, 2% of their adult children went to church. Now, get this, it gets even better, okay? Okay. When it was swapped, when the father went to church and the mother was an unbeliever, the mother didn't go to church, 44% of their adult children went to church, higher than when, it, when both went, because it had such an impact on their children's lives that my dad is worshiping God no matter what. Okay, I'm, I'm following in his steps. Right? Now, of course, right, uh, God is for the fatherless, God is for the orphan. This doesn't mean that, I mean, we know Timothy was learned the scriptures from his mother and his grandmother Eunice. So there's not to mean that, you know, if you don't have that ideal situation, that you're just lost. No, that's not the point. The point is just that the father has the primary influence. That's just the way it is. Another well-known statistic is how likely children are to fail when they, when they grow up without a father. So some of these statistics are like this. Teens from fatherless homes are five times more likely to commit suicide, 32 times more likely to run away, 20 times more likely to have behavioral disorders, 14 times more likely to commit rape, nine times more likely to drop out of high school, 10 times more likely to abuse chemical substances. You see, God has made the father the one with not only the primary responsibility, but also the one with the primary influence. In his family. And the hope for even single parents or maybe mothers that are fighting against their husbands um, and trying to lead the family spiritually, but she knows that's not how it is to be, is to look at their father, God the Father, who is a father to the fatherless. And, and for that, I want to say never underestimate the power of depositing the word of God in your children's lives, the power of prayer. How, how many testimonies have we heard of that praying mother? that just didn't want to let go of their son's salvation or their child's salvation, right? And then God sometimes even answering that prayer after the mother has passed away. God is faithful. But men, this is a sermon specifically for you. 
right? Because that's the person that Paul addresses here. So this should both encourage you as men and humble you as men at the same time. It should encourage you as a man to show that your role in society, your role in family, is not worthless, indispensable, or dispensable. You're not just a problem to be fixed just because you're a man, right? We're living in a society that really hates men, really hates male leadership, male headship. And so the encouragement is, listen, don't listen to the voices around you. Listen to God's word. Take up your place, men. Stand up and take up your place. Don't say, well, you know, I'm struggling and you wouldn't know how I, how I grew up. And it's No, grow up and stand in your place. Do, take your duty seriously. We need men that can lead sacrificially in their families. We need that. To, to illustrate this, right, what will happen when we as men start to take our role seriously, both marriage and parenting? I want to illustrate this with another man who did it right. His name was Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a man who oversaw the education of his, okay, hold your breath, 11 children, okay? <laughs> 11 children, I think before birth control, right? <laughs> um, but he faithfully, he was a man that was a faithful husband, a faithful father. He led regularly in family worship and educating his children. Listen to what happened to his descendants. So this is just another uh, list of st statistics for you. Um, so we have a, a, lot, a lot of statistics today. Okay, in 1900, that's about 250 years after Jonathan Edwards, there was a study done about 1,400 descendants of Jonathan, Ed and Jonathan and Sarah by the year 1900. Okay? He, they found that their children included 13 college presidents, 65 professors, 100 lawyers and a dean of a law school, 30 judges, 66 physicians, a dean of a medical school, 80 holders of public, public office, three U.S. senators, mayors of three large cities, vice president of the United States, and a controller of the United States Treasury. They had written over 135 books, edited 18 journal and periodicals. Many had entered the ministry. Over 100 were missionaries, and others were on mission boards. One family, so I, I would say it's fair to say one man's family changed the world. Just one, right? Just, just 11 children. <laughs> so that might be, might be a good reason not to stop at one, okay, or two. All right, to say, Lord, I want to change the world, okay? Let's go, let's, okay. That's my encouragement to us, okay? So men, be encouraged. Don't say, well, you know, I'm useless. I'm with no, you're not. You're not useless. You're not worthless. Stand up. You have that influence, whether you like it or not. Now use it. Use it for the Lord. But there's no, something not just encouraging about that. There's also something extremely humbling about that. And it's this. Because you, as a man, have the primary influence in your family, your judgment will also be more severe than your wife's judgment. Your judgment on judgment day will be way worse than your wife. Because you were the leader, right? Because you were the head. Because you had the primary influence. And if you squandered that, your judgment will be worse. God requires more of us. If you have more responsibility, requires more of you. 
when the family is in disarray, when the family is struggling, even if it's primarily the wife's fault, God knocks at the door, like we said before, and says, can I speak to the man of the house? I want to speak to the man of the house because ultimately it's his fault, right? So that's humbling, is it not? So yes, we have this role, but let that humble you and let that make you depend on God and depend on your wife for precious help, right? Women are, is the helper fit for man? We can't do this alone. But let that humble you. And, and here's the good news. Maybe for some of you, you might just be feeling overwhelmed. There is a Savior who has died for your sins. There is a Savior who has been nailed to the tree for all of your failures, even as a father, even as a man, as a wife, as a mother. Don't we have a heavenly Father who will give us support? Don't we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us to guide us, control us, lead us to repentance? We have help, right? So be encouraged, be humbled, and Look to God and cling to Him for this help because you can't do this on your own. Right? Okay, now what are we actually to do? So that's the first word, right? Fathers. So that's the point we need to say before we dive in. But what does God actually call us as fathers, including the mothers, to actually do in our parenting? There's only two things you need to do. Two things. First, don't provoke your children. And secondly, bring them up in the discipline and instructional. That's the only two things you have to do. If you do those two things, you'll be the perfect parent. Okay. So, but for the rest of our time, I'm only going to focus on the first point and next Sunday, Lord willing, look at the second point to bring them up in the discipline and instruction world. So today, only the first commandment. So let, let's look at that first commandment again in verse four. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. That verse beautifully balances the relationship between parent and child. Remember what children are told to do what? In verses 1 to 3, they are to obey their parents and they are to honor their father and their mother, even if their father and their mother are not worthy of that. Right? So children are to obey even with bad parents. Children are to honor even with bad parents. Okay? But how easy it is for children to honor and obey their parents when they have parents who do not constantly provoke them to anger. You see, so this is, again, this balancing act of Scripture that if both parties fulfill their roles, we have a harmonious family. It was the same with wives back in chapter 5, remember? Wives are to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord, but how easy it is for a wife to submit if the husband loves his wife as Christ loved the church. So if we just do our roles rightly, family will be easy. Family will be a place of paradise. So parents, this is big. Your role as a parent can either produce mature, happy, obedient children, or it can produce bitter, angry, immature, or disbelieving children. So your, your influence on your child is, is massive. So use it also wisely. The only other passage in the New Testament talking to parents directly is found in Colossians 3.21, which is the parallel of this. Listen to Colossians 3. 21, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So that would, be, that would be the effect. If we ignore these instructions, what would be the effect on children? They would be discouraged. What does that mean? Wayne Mack wrote, God is saying, don't raise your children in such a way as to take the wind out of their sails. Some parents are so heavy-handed, so harsh, 
so strict with their children, they literally crush their little soul, their little spirits, their energy, their enthusiasm, their creativity. Instead of making that flourish, they squash it. That's what this means. Don't, dis- don't provoke your children in such a way that they lose their energy. They lose their childlessness, if that's a word. Right? You want your children to not cease being children. And isn't that what sometimes parents do, right? They, they discipline their children for being children. Right? They, they expect things from a child that not even some adults can do. And that's what it means. So that's basically what this means. Let me give you one verse in the Old Testament that I think summarizes what it means to not provoke your children in, in, to anger. I'm almost willing to say that this, if you just remember this one verse, you can forget everything I've just said or going to say. Listen to this beautiful verse. This verse, for me, clarifies what it means not to provoke your children to anger. And we look to God our Father in Psalm 103, verse 13 to 14. Let me read it for us. Psalm 103, verse 13 to 14. It says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. That one verse summarizes what it means to not provoke your children to anger. How does God show compassion on us? By remembering our frame. He knows that we are just dust. God knows our limits. God knows how much we can take. God knows what will be good for us and what will, be, what will destroy us. God is faithful who will by no means let us be tempted beyond our ability. Remember when Elijah was so depressed that he woke up and asked God, God, it is enough, take my life. Elijah was on the verge of suicide, you could say. How did God respond to Elijah in that setting? Right? He gave him bread and told him to sleep. Twice. (laughs) What Elijah needed wasn't theology, wasn't philosophy, wasn't logic, but a bed. Go to bed, Elijah. (laughs) Because why? Why did God say that? Because he knew his frame. He knew his limits. He knew what he needed at that moment. Look at the New Testament. After a grueling day of exhaustive ministry, what does Jesus say to his disciples, right? He says, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. What is the open invitation of Christ? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, you see, so that's how our children should feel in our presence. Our children should feel rest in our presence. They should feel like when they come to mom and dad, there's peace, there's harmony. I can be myself without fear because my father, my my mother knows my frame. They know I'm a two-year-old and can't wash the dishes yet or whatever. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that God doesn't discipline us, right? He does. Hebrews 12, verse 5 to 6, listen to this. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, chastises every son whom he receives. God disciplines us, and when he does, we are tempted to grow weary. We're tempted to give up. So 
even God's discipline might sometimes be so painful for us that we think, maybe God is heavy-handed with me. That's never true. Why? He disciplines the one he loves, in whom he delights. Even the most painful discipline that comes into our lives by our Heavenly Father is perfect for you. Perfect. Not too much, not too little. That you can learn to become more like Christ. In other words, God will never break this commandment to provoke you to anger. Never. If you're tempted to be angry with God, it's not a problem with God. The problem is with you. You either don't know God's character or trust Him that He is good and faithful and wise, even in the, the current situation you are in right now. So parents, what this all means for you and me is that we must remember, we must have compassion on our children's lives and know their frame and remember that they are but dust. They are weak. They are easily tempted. So don't be heavy-handed with them. Discipline with, faith, with faithful gentleness. Don't raise your voice at them. Encourage them often. Tell them how often you love them and are proud of them and encourage them in their weakness. Praise them for their success. Listen to them when they talk to you. Teach them. Remember their little frames. That's the point of this text, right? Now, let me flesh that out very specifically in seven points, seven ways we commonly provoke our children to anger. And we'll close after that. So the seven and this is not an exhaustive list. There's probably many more, but probably the seven most common ways that fathers, especially fathers, but father and mother can provoke their children to anger. Number one, anger. Anger. The easiest way to provoke your children to anger is to be angry yourself. Is it not so true that we as parents, especially we as men, set the tone of the house? We, we set the spiritual climate of the house. So if the house is always tense, always angry, always just be careful not to make one misstep, otherwise there's going to be an explosion, I will want to talk to the dad and hear how he's doing with his anger. So in your house, right, is there constant shouting? Is there constant nagging? Is the only time when your children hear you speak, when you are criticizing them, when you are rebuking them for something they did wrong? So, beloved, if that's you, repent. Repent of that. Take your angry heart and give it to Jesus. Give it to Him. Confess that. Open it up before Him. Ask Him for forgiveness and ask your children for forgiveness as well if, you, if they are still alive. Number two, neglect. So not just with anger, but with neglect. That was the sin of David, remember, against his son Absalom. Remember, Absalom, right? His, Absalom came back after a long exile, a long way, and his father didn't even go to see him. His father never went to him, right? And so frustrated was he, right? You could see the devastating effects that had on his family. So parents, listen to me. This sin, the sin of neglect, has many clothes, Right? It, it has many forms. And I think sometimes we think we're not neglecting our children because we've only ticked one of the boxes. But remember, there's many ways you can neglect your children. The most serious way, obviously, is physically. That is the most serious way. If you just refuse to provide for your children physically, 
Remember 1 Timothy 5 verse 8. It says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and he's worse than an unbeliever. The parent that doesn't provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever because even unbelievers do that. You don't have to be a Christian to want to provide for your family. But there are many other ways we neglect our family, not just physically. Some parents never show affection for their children. Never. They don't hug them. They don't wrestle with them on the bed. They don't encourage them and compliment them. They don't say they are proud of them. In fact, some parents don't speak to their children at all. Right? I remember the story of one son who wanted to hear his dad just say, I love you. That's what he, he just wanted to hear those words. But he, because the family wasn't saying those words a lot, he was trying to find a sneaky way to get it. So one day, his father bought him a gift. And seeing a perfect opportunity, the son said, thank you, dad, I love you. Hoping that it would be responded. But the father replied, that would have meant more before the gift. So a perfect opportunity to show affection was responded with criticism. A perfect opportunity to give affection was withheld. Which leads to the third way fathers tend to provoke their children. That is excessive criticism. Excessive criticism. Like I said before, some parents only speak to their children when they have to correct them, discipline them, tell them how they should improve, tell them how many times they failed. We see this on the sideline of the rugby game, right, at high school. If you've ever seen some of those fathers, doesn't matter what that, that son does. It's like everything is a criticism. We see it with the mother constantly telling her children that she either wished they were never born or wished that they were different people. Parents, may our hearts be cleansed from this negativity, from this anger, this criticism. So how does the opposite look like? We, we bless our children. We tell them how much we love them. We encourage them. We pray with them frequently. It's amazing, this act of blessing, blessing our children, is as we bless them, they become that blessing in a sense as well. I think this is the biblical meaning of life and death is in the power of the tongue. I think that's what it means. As we speak over our children and we bless them, they become that. If we withheld that, if we constantly criticize them, constantly um, just show them their weaknesses, it kills them. So it's beautiful at night or whenever you can to just say, may God bless you. May God's face shine upon you. And I pray that you will love him and adore him back. And that prayerful blessing has an impact on their little hearts. Number four, sinful discipline. Sinful discipline. So not we need to discipline, but this is now sinful discipline. So, and this is, I would say, the main way, especially in Colossians, is that harshness, that heavy-handedness. On the, on the one extreme, we have the heavy-handed, harsh discipline of a parent. I don't know if many of you would be familiar with the term trigger-happy, right? Especially in games, in gaming. Someone's trigger-happy, meaning the, the finger is loose on, this, on the trigger, the smallest leaf just falls and then the whole leaf is just blown to smithereens, right? You know what I mean? person can't keep the finger off the trigger. Now, it's sad to say many parents are slap-happy parents, right? They just hit the child for no reason. 
at random times, for no reason at all, at any time, at any place on their body, they don't care, a slap happy dad. They, or they only discipline once they had enough. Right? Ginger Hubbard in her book, Don't Make Me Count to Three, says, calls this the, the teapot discipline. It's like the steam builds up, the steam builds up, and only when the steam is out, then the parent says, okay, I had enough, I'm going to discipline you now. Beloved, there is a world of difference between the faithful, self-controlled, consistent, loving, well-timed use of the rod for disobedience and your child defying you and your authority and the heavy-handedness of some parents to just discipline their children whenever they like and however they like. That's the one extreme, is the heavy-handedness, but there is another extreme. The other extreme is no discipline at all also provokes your children to anger. So on the one side, it's all discipline. On the other side, there's no discipline. That's equally sinful because it breaks God's law, God's commandment. Listen to Proverbs 29 verse 15. These verses are just parents. If you're listening to this, memorize these verses. Very good. It says, the rod and reproof give wisdom. Notice, not just a rod, not just reproof. The rod and reproof give wisdom. Both are necessary, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Notice something. That text says, if you leave a child alone, you destroy him. Why? Because the main problem with your child is not outside of them, but inside of them. Their hearts. Children might be born cute, but they are not born sinless. They are born in sin. That's why you don't have to teach them anything about tantrums or lying or whacking one another over the head with their toys. It's supernatural. It happens. Super space Natural. (laughs) Just to clarify that. Right? Not supernatural. Okay. Proverbs 22 is 15. Listen to this. It says, folly, folly, stupidity, making dumb decisions, okay, is bound up in the heart of a child. Where does a child's foolishness come from? From their own hearts. Oh, if we only had a way to get that folly out. Oh, wait, wait. The rest of the verse. Let's see. It says, But the rod of discipline drives it far from him. So a child's folly comes from inside their their heart. So sometimes, you know, when when a child or when someone is just a a mess and a wreck, sometimes people say, I wonder what the parents did to that child, that that, that that child is behaving like that. Well, sometimes we can say, what did the parents not do that the child is like that? They just left the child. So that's what we need. No, not no discipline, not heavy-handedness, but faithful discipline. Basically, the rest of verse 4, which we will look at next week, but it says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction, both. Number five, second, uh, third last one, is the all-know and no-yes parents. The all-know and no-yes parents. We see this often when a, a parent simply cannot say yes to their child. A child would come, ask for something, doesn't matter what it is, it can be the most reasonable request of their parents, and the, and the answer is always no. No yes. No desire to bless. No desire to give. It's like just no, 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 no. Douglas Wilson gave a, Doug Wilson gave a wonderful illustration of this. When God put Adam and Eve in the garden, 
He put them in a garden full of yes with one no. It was a garden of yes. Like, you can have all of this. All of this is yours. Only one no. And the lie, the lie was, no, God put you in a garden of no, right, with this one yes. Maybe you can take this one. So it was the lie of God is stingy. But some parents are like this. They, they just baptize their children in no, and there's no giving of their desires. There's no, I want to bless you. Now, of course, right, um, Parents should aim for this with wisdom. Right? Our, our heart should be inclined to say yes as a default, but we should realize also remembering their frame. But uh, let me just say how this often looks like, right, is parents with a lot of no's are parents with a million rules in the home. They don't have just little, they have a million rules. Don't run too fast. No talking during conversations. No loud speaking. No, no, no. And the poor child can't even remember all of the rules, but they, they're all there. Rather, we should have few rules that encompasses everything. So again, Doug Wilson gave, Doug Wilson and his family had three rules. Three family rules, that was it. First one, no disobedience. Okay, that kind of, it can almost stop there. <laughs> okay. But rule number one, no disobedience. Rule number two, no lying. You're not allowed to lie. And rule number three, no disrespecting mom. That's the third rule. Now, again, if you just have those three rules, boom, everything's covered. You don't have to worry about all these little million rules. You can just live, just be a family. Again, now let me clarify this one thing. Your no and yes ratio will look different as your child grows up, okay? When your child is zero years old, you, have, you will have a lot of no's, unless... Otherwise, your child will die. So <laughs> don't touch that boiling kettle full of water, right? Leave the sharp knife alone, <laughs> okay? Right, so, so in the beginning of your parenting, you're going to have 100% authority over your child. Otherwise, they die and 0% influence. And the ideal is as they grow up, your, influ your authority goes down and your influence goes up. So as your child grows up, you give them more responsibility. You give them more yeses. You let them make their own mistakes. You don't just always use your authority. And in an ideal world, when they're ready to leave the home, you have 0% authority over them, but 100% influence in, the, in their lives. That's the kind of, I hope you see that graph in your mind that you would like to aim for. But for many parents, they do this in reverse. When the child is zero, everything's a yes. No rules, no discipline, Right? No, honey, please put that down. Honey, please stop. Please, oh, don't, don't mind her. She's, she's just two-year-old. She doesn't understand. But when the teen pregnancy comes, suddenly the parents clamp down on rules, right? Okay, no more sleeping over. No more this. No more that. But it's too late. The order is wrong. You want to begin with all authority and end with all influence in their lives. So parents, let us seek to be a yes parent, if I can say that, with wisdom. Okay, we need that wisdom. But let, us, let our children know that our hearts are for them and not against them. Number six is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Often some parents say, do as I tell you, don't do what I do. That provokes a child to anger. So if you want your child to pray, do you pray? If you want your child to read the Bible, do you read the Bible? 
If you, if you say, God is the most important person in my life, is that actually reflected in your day-to-day living? Can people, other people see that? Your family see you in that? I'm, I'm convinced this is the most difficult part of parenting. It's not what we teach, right? It's how we live before them. Suddenly you realize, well, I have to be the model now, what I want them to be. So they will have, your life will have a far greater impact in their lives than what you say. And lastly, the last one is, it might surprise you, but making children the primary relationship in the family. Making children the primary relationship in the family. That, that might sound strange, but this too is actually missing where the proper place for children should be in the family. Some parents make that parent-child relationship everything. And in the process, they destroy their marriage and they destroy their children. Because what children need most is a marriage, a strong marriage, right? Because think about it biblically. Your marriage is primary, not your parenting. Your marriage is number one. Your children are number two. Marriage is the picture between Christ and the church. Marriage is a lifelong covenant. Parenting isn't. We say in marriage, our vows in marriage are, right, until death do us part. We say, I will be devoted. I'll stay with you until death do us part. Imagine if a parent and child said that to one another. I'll stay with you until death. Like Something's wrong. Somebody needs to intervene there, right? Remember, that's the first step. Children, leave your parents. That's the first step. You can't get married if you haven't left your father and your mother. That's the first step to getting married. Now, parents, this should actually make you a bit more excited than maybe downcast, right? Focus on your marriage. Hey, but who's going to look off the kids? Christian people here, right? There's a lot of Christians here, I believe, that can take off the kids. Go and pursue your wife. Ironically, a child feels most safe, most secure when they know their second and mom and dad's marriage is number one. There was a couple I knew in, in a church back in Pretoria that really, really fought a lot. They had a lot of arguments, had a lot of fights. One day, as they were driving to church, they were f- having one of those fights in the car right before the church start, this church service start. And when they stopped, their daughter came to them, took both of their heads and tried to make them kiss. And that just like broke them because what their daughter wanted was for mom and dad to kiss each other, not to f- constantly fight against one another. So children want that. And if they don't have that, it provokes them. So maybe you are sitting here and you feel it's already over. My children have left the home. I, I cannot make this right. Oh, that's just a, I thought, thought it's the moment. Okay. Okay. You might feel, but my, my chance, um, my parenting years are done. Like I can't rectify this. I can't change this. No, that's not true. That's not true. It's, if your child is still alive, it's not over yet. Go to the cross and see your sins nailed to that tree. See it there, your failure as a mother and a father. Go to your children and ask them for forgiveness where you failed. And say from now on, even the, the little bit of influence I might have in your life, I want to use for God's glory. 
Maybe your children might be a bit older, but are still in the home, and you feel like, but already they're so old, I don't think I can recover. Again, no, it's not over yet. By God's grace, it's not too late for you. But it has to start with deep repentance. You cannot begin unless you repent and humble yourself before God. No excuses. No, but if you just did that, or if you just stopped doing that, or don't do that. Repent really from your sins. Ask both God and your family for forgiveness. Then decide to worship God together as a family. Maybe your children are here and they're below five. Praise God for that. Praise God. You have precious, precious years with your children to raise them up, to not provoke them, but to do it right. To maybe also generationally have that impact that Jonathan Edwards had, that your children can go out into the world to change the world as you raise them up, showing them how a godly family looks like. So parents, study this passage, memorize it, meditate on it, apply it. Do it together with your wife. Be optimistic. Trust in God. He is faithful when we are unfaithful. Maybe those without children. Maybe those without even, not even in a relationship. Again, just look to your heavenly father. Look to him. Trust him with the current situation you are in. Right? Your father is compassionate on you. He knows your frame. He knows that you are but dust. So trust him. Amen. Let's pray. I'd like to give a short moment of silent prayer. Just use this time to just pray and respond to God. And yeah, let's use this time to respond to Him. Father, we come to you this evening and afternoon, Lord, in, in humble repentance of our sins. Lord, who can say among us that our hands are clean and our hearts are pure? Lord, for all of us have sinned and fall short, fallen short of your glory. But Lord, we thank you for that, for that cross that you, that you gave us, your son that you gave up on, on that cross to die for our failures, die for our sins, that we might not just be forgiven, but be renewed and pursue reconciliation with those and in our lives that we have broken relationships with, Lord. Oh, Father, be merciful to us, especially as fathers. Lord, help us. We are weak. We are sinful. We are fearful. We are doubtful. Lord, there's so many obstacles we need to overcome, but thank you, Father, for your free grace in Christ and your empowering Holy Spirit that lives within us and your transforming grace that empowers us. Well, I thank you for every mother in this building, Lord. Thank you for their godly influence both on their husbands and their, and their children. 
I pray that you would help them, Lord, to also trust you in their role in the family, to know of your wisdom and trust in your word, Lord, to make that deposit like like um, Timothy's mother and grandmother did in his life, that they too would deposit the word of God in, in their hearts. Oh, Father, I pray for a true revival in our families, that our families might become the family that will be stable for the next generation and the generations afterwards that will rise up to change the world for your glory and your namesake. Well, we trust you with these things and pray in Jesus' name.